0: My name is Michael Cox and I'm the online content editor at the University of Warwick working in the communications office. There's much excitement surrounding the possibilities of nanotechnology, particularly within the healthcare and IT industries. Carbon nanotubes are a notable example. However, there are also concerns, since we do not know everything about the effects that nanometer scale elements may have, as their reactivity changes considerably at this level. There could be health or environmental impacts that we haven't even begun to imagine. Today I'm talking to David Smith from the University of York, who is leading the field in terms of nanotechnology and its application to medicine. Firstly, please can you define nanotechnology for us? Yeah, so I mean the key about nanotechnology is it's a technology that's based around a specific length scale at the end of the day. So as far as the sort of normal person's concerned, nanotechnology is the world of the very, very small. So it's about a millionth of a millimetre. So take a millimetre, the smallest division on a ruler, divide it by a million and you've got a nanometer. So it's tiny from the point of view of the world around us. From a chemist's point of view, nanotechnology is pretty big. We're used to working with molecules which are even smaller than a nanometer, about a tenth of a nanometer in size. So, in nanotechnology, we're working with things that are sized between one and a hundred nanometers, so a millionth of a millimeter upwards. And really, um, the aim of nanotechnology is to discover new functions and new properties of those objects as a consequence of their size. So it's the fact that things that have that size may do something different to things that we're used to dealing with. OK, um, can you give me some examples of things which change at that kind of scale? I mean, a nice example from the electronic side is that the electronic properties of pieces of metal really change as you get smaller and smaller. As objects become smaller, they have more area on their surface and less area inside in the bulk. And so you maximise the surface area of an object as it becomes smaller and smaller. And that changes the electronic properties of a metal. That's one of the reasons that the electronics industry is excited by nanotechnology. And that would lead to what kind of benefits? Well, the benefits could be, for example, for the electronics industry, would be faster computing, smaller computers, chips that are based on a much smaller basis and can do computing potentially in a different way because the electronics of the metal will change as they become smaller. What's going to be the single most significant application of nanotechnology? If you have to just pick one thing, what's going to be most most significant? I think really the most significant aspect of nanotechnology is that it's a way of thinking... It's, a, it's, it's about manipulating matter on a biological scale. And really, that's one of the most interesting aspects to it. All the molecules that make us, the people we are, are nanometer sized And really, the possibilities of nanotechnology to go in as a chemist and interact with that and interface with that, I don't think it can be summed up as a kind of what's the single advance going to be. It's like in, at least in the field of medicine it's a whole new way of thinking about approaching medicinal problems the traditional way of approaching medicinal problems is very very focused and very much about making a very small molecule to interact with a specific target once you start thinking about bigger things suddenly you can think about interacting with biological systems in so many different ways that it opens up totally new areas of medicine and I think that's really what the impact of nanotechnology will be, it's the fact that it's going to open up new areas of medicine that you couldn't have thought about opening previously. I would say that tissue engineering is likely in the, in the medium term to be probably the most exciting advance that nanotechnology can offer, the ability to use nanoscale matrices to grow new organs for patients. Uh, I talked about growing the nerve cells. It doesn't have to be limited to a nerve cell. If you combine nanotechnology with stam- stem cell technology then there's the possibility of beginning to think about growing completely new organs for patients. And I think that's probably one of the most exciting applications. But it all stems from working on the same kind of scale as the biological molecules themselves. And when you said sort of medium term, but realistically, what kind of timescales are we talking about before we see some of these things coming into fruition? Well, I mean, they always say that To develop any new drug from the initial results that you get in the laboratory is normally a minimum of 10 years. That's what you have to think about for a company to take it on, to do all the trialling, so all the safety testing, to then trial it through early patient trials, bring the thing to market. It's about a 10-year process. I would say we're at the stage of having the early laboratory results at the moment coming through in tissue engineering. So for that kind of process, you'd be looking 10 years and 10 years plus for those kinds of things coming through into the clinic. For some of the drug delivery systems, some are already coming through into the clinic, so I'd say that's a short-term process in that place, and you'd maybe be looking at those becoming more standard over the next five years. Right now, what sort of things are available and how can they actually be applied in real-world situations? So at the moment it's, it's really focused around drug delivery systems um, and there's been a lot of interest in designing systems using chemical and biological synthesis to enhance the delivery of a drug. So take for example a disease like cancer. Okay? Um, the problem with a traditional anti-cancer drug is that it will go all over your body and it causes a lot of side effects. So it will go into your stomach, it makes you very sick, it makes your hair fall out. Anywhere you have rapidly dividing cells the anti-cancer chemical will operate. So if you could target that chemical more effectively to the tumour, then you have a better chance of success. So increasingly, some of the anti-cancer drugs going through the clinic and the trial stage are using targeting mechanisms where, for example, they'll take an antibody that specifically wants to go to a given tumour, they'll attach it to the anti-cancer drug, and they'll use that biological carrier which is an object on the nanometer length scale to carry the drug molecule through the body to the place where it's required. And so a lot of the sort of anti-cancer treatments of the future may well rely on delivery systems to get the specificity of action that are based on nanotechnology type approaches. Is this sort of something which might happen in the near future then? Those kinds of antibody-directed therapies are the kinds of things that are in clinical trials, and some of the new drugs coming onto the market are operating in that kind of way. So you're talking about early-stage anti-cancer drugs. The delivery mechanisms that we've covered already, could you describe them in a little bit more detail? Please. I'll give you a simple example of one that people have looked at quite a lot, and there's a lot of studies kind of in the literature and some early early animal studies looking at whether these work. A good example for treating cancer is that it's known that certain cancer cells really require certain nutrients to grow effectively. So one of them is folate, and there's many cancer cells that are what you call folate upregulated, so they need more folate than normal cells. Now folate is just a small chemical molecule, that's all it is. So if you attach folate to your delivery vehicle, then ultimately what will happen is one that goes past the cancer cell, the cancer cell sees the folate and thinks, oh, here comes a piece of food. And so the cancer cell has receptors for the folate, grabs the folate, but at the same time it's getting the rest of the nano delivery vehicle and it's getting the payload that's going to kill the cancer cell once it takes the food. So it's a bit like a Trojan horse principle, but all done with molecules. You hide your destructive agent, your army, if you like, inside this horse this nanoscale vehicle which you know the the cells like the trojans think is a gift think it's something they really want take it in through the gates and then they realize that actually they've destroyed themselves and that's what we'd like to do at least in the case of cancer cells Um, and that's a way you can envisage delivery quite clearly but it's all just using molecules the same way that aspirin and paracetamol are just molecules Presumably, be a benefit of this over something like radiotherapy is it's very targeted and doesn't damage the cells that you don't want to damage. Yeah, that would body. be the key idea of the benefit. Would be if you can get this kind of targeted delivery system, uh, then you're gonna you're gonna have benefits for the patient from less side effects. What about in the sort of more distant future, perhaps more kind of um, you know. Up in the air blue sky possibilities what, 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 where could it, how far could it possibly go? Well I mean one of the really exciting studies that came out this year which at this stage was still a lab study not in people as yet was the possibility of beginning to do tissue engineering so there's a big problem for people who have nerve failure So a good example is Christopher Reeve, the actor who played Superman, who who had the spinal damage and, of course, was paralysed. At the minute, there's very little that you can do to treat a patient with paralysis. You basically hope that there's going to be some nerve regrowth within the nerve cells of the patient. And if there was some way of encouraging nerve regrowth, this would be a way of treating a patient with nerve failure. So recently, uh, it was just earlier this year, there was a study done on some, uh, it was done on hamsters in in a model system, which looked at hamsters that were blind because they had damage to the optic nerve. And what was done was a synthetic scaffold was put into the damaged part of the optic nerve. So it was a small chemical molecule which assembled into a nanometer sized, basically like a piece of scaffolding, if you can think of scaffolding for a human body. And they left it in the optic nerve of the hamster. And what they found is that the hamster regrew its nerve cells through the nanometer-sized scaffolding. So the same way you might use scaffolding to build a building, the animal was actually using the scaffolding to regrow its nerve cells. And what they found is that a hamster that was blind at the start of the study was able to see by the end of the study. And ultimately the scaffolding then degraded uh, within the body over a period of several months and was removed. But of course the nerve cells that had grown through the scaffolding were left behind. And so the kinds of prospects that the field may hold out is that you can do this sort of nanoscale engineering inside a human body, regrowing tissues, regrowing cells, and so on. What about any potential risks of this kind of treatment? Yeah. I mean, obviously this is absolutely crucial in any new technology, and any new technology can have risks associated with the benefits. I think the important thing to say about applications of nanotechnology in medicine Is that medicine is an incredibly highly regulated industry and we know very very well how to deal with molecules going into the human body there's a whole regime set up where you test the molecule through a whole series of different trials to see what effects it's going to have ultimately on the patient and really in terms of nanotechnology what you're looking at doing is not hugely different to what you do in traditional medicinal chemistry you're using molecules They're perhaps assembling into a larger structure, or they're interacting with biological molecules, or they're bound to biological molecules to form larger structures. But at the end of the day, they're chemical entities, the same way that aspirin or paracetamol is a chemical entity. And so you can use the same kind of testing protocols that have been traditionally used by the pharmaceutical industry to ensure that nanotechnology is safe. Now, of course, there's debate about what the right testing protocol should be. But those kind of testing protocols and ethical considerations are in place in the medicinal chemistry sort of industry. And so it's a question of applying those and making sure that you work in a stepwise process to these new structures that are thrown up by people working in nanotechnology. What about any environmental impacts of this kind of technology escaping? Um, there's, I've read sort of some, what you probably would say, fanciful comments about what might happen if if, um, self-assembling nanotechnologies were to escape into the world is there any kind of real risk from discarding nanotechnologies waste? It's a really good question, it's a really important question as well and it's important to define what we mean by self-assembling system first of all I guess and there's this image that what nanotechnologies want to do is make a machine that lives in essence, that has a sort of life of its own on the nanoscale, like a tiny little robot. And actually, that's not what people in the clinic are trying to do at the moment. That's not even an interest that we have. If you take the example of the scaffolding that's being used for nerve cell growth, which is a good example, this is a very simple chemical molecule, actually. To say it's no different to aspirin really isn't exaggerating. It's a small peptide molecule. Peptides are naturally occurring anyway all around us. It happens that when you put it into place, it self-assembles into a nanoscale scaffolding. But then we actually have enzymes in our body that will break those peptides down. That's their very job, to break them down into even smaller building blocks, simple amino acids, which are present in our bodies as well, and ultimately will just um, be excreted in normal ways. So you're not talking about making a nanoscale system that exists forever and ever as a nanoscale system in that case. It's a system that assembles and then is gradually degraded, and it's built using biological molecules and building blocks. So, in that essence, I'm not too worried about the waste from nanotechnology. However, if you're making a nanoscale object that will always stay a nanoscale object, and you want to treat a patient with it, then it's important that you do the toxicity testing, and it's important that you look at the environmental long-term effects. We have to be sensitive about these things. There's already a big problem with things like polymers in the environment, you know, plastic bags on rubbish tips, and we have to make sure we don't add to that problem with new technologies that we develop. What are the key areas that you are researching right now? Well, one area that we're particularly interested in is an area that's been active for about 10 years, and and it's broadly called gene therapy. So to put it into context, one of my best friends has cystic fibrosis, um, and this is a genetic disorder. It's caused by a mutation on basically a single base of the DNA, and... The problems that it causes is he gets mucus in his lungs and his pancreas doesn't work properly. His lungs gradually degrade over a period of time. And this is a, this is a killing illness. Ultimately, this is a chronic disease. And life expectancy for people with this disease is typically between 35 and 40 years. So this is a, this is a serious illness. And there's no way of treating it currently medicinally. There's no way of approaching a treatment for this. And for some time it's been proposed that one way of treating patients with genetic disorders is to get a healthy piece of the DNA that they really need within their their bodies, and to deliver that DNA into their cells so that somehow they can use that DNA themselves and fix their faulty genome for themselves. And the key problem with doing that is not the idea of giving them the healthy DNA, in a way it's not even making the cells use the healthy DNA, The problem is delivering the DNA into the required cells of the patient. And we're working on trying to develop chemical delivery systems so that we can take the DNA and deliver it into the cells of the patient. And there's a huge number of problems, and there's many, many groups active in this area. It's not our problem as such. is a problem that many groups worldwide are trying to solve. And we have to work closely with biologists and medics and ourselves as synthetic chemists to try and make progress in this area. But ultimately, that's kind of a key target that we have, to build a synthetic carrier. And of course, the best way to do that is to have a carrier that's a similar size to the DNA molecule itself. And that means using a nanotechnology kind of approach because DNA is a nano-sized molecule. And achieving the delivery by... Putting different bits onto your molecule that will encourage it to go into the right kinds of cells where the patient really needs to receive the DNA. So that's a that's one of the key areas that we'd be working in in trying to apply nanochemistry to solve medicinal problems. Okay, um, could you give me any more examples of different kind of genetic conditions that this might apply to? Because I get the feeling that this could apply to other things as well. I mean, there's a huge number of genetic conditions that it could apply to. So sickle cell anemia is a good example um, that affects particularly Afro-Caribbean populations, um, which causes a sickling of the red blood cells, so they don't work effectively. Once again, it's a life-limiting illness. You will die younger if you have sickle cell anemia. Once again, it's caused by a genetic defect. However, it's not only related to these kind of genetic illnesses that you'll have from birth as such. Even cancer has a genetic component to the disease and so there are ways of trying to develop genetic approaches to treating cancer and diseases like this as well. So there's a whole range of different diseases that you can look at treating using a gene therapy type approach, either delivering DNA or RNA, ribonucleic acid, into the cells of the patient. So we've talked about uh, what you're doing, now should we talk about how you're doing it, so on a typical day, but I'm going to go and do some research into this thing which will carry something and help a patient with cystic fibrosis, yeah. what do you do? So ultimately, I mean, a typical day, obviously, I have a research team that are working on solving these kinds of problems, and... They're the guys, practically, that are doing the work in the lab. So um, the girl who's active on this project, what she'd do on a typical day is she'd go into the lab and she'd do some synthesis, perhaps. So we may have a target for how we can change our carrier molecule. Maybe we can make it grab onto the DNA a little bit better. Maybe we can make it target to a specific type of cell by attaching a particular chemical onto it so it goes and then is targeted to that particular cell. And so she'd be doing chemistry, making a new molecule basically, forming bonds, connecting all the different components together so that you have a system that will grab the DNA and deliver it to the cell. And so she might be setting up reactions, uh, dealing with reactions, purifying the products that she's made so we know exactly what the products are. And then another typical day for her might be to go and test those molecules. So potentially to go and work with one of our biology collaborators and go and see well do these things really bind to the DNA and perhaps to visualize it under an electron microscope to, to look at the complexes that are made between our molecules and the DNA. I mean that's one of the great things about nanotechnology and this is why nanotechnology is happening now is that we have electron microscopes so you can see things that are nanometer sized. It's the first time in history that we've been able to see the objects that we want to work with And really that's driven the whole field. So it's as simple as we can take our carrier molecule, we can take the DNA, we can mix them together, and under an electron microscope we can watch one interact with the other and package it up into a little ball. So that could be another typical experiment. And then ultimately she'll go to America and work with our collaborators over there and look at whether we can use the carrier molecules to carry real genetic material into cells. And she'll work with cell lines Um, over in america and so we span the whole range from chemistry through to biology with collaborators we we, we talked about using nanotechnology to deliver treatments to people with conditions such as cystic fibrosis Uh, at what point during their life would you expect to administer this treatment are we talking very very early on to prevent it ever causing them a problem or later on in life perhaps in early adulthood well ultimately the principle would be you could treat cells or people at any stage with this kind of with this kind of treatment and so for something like cancer you may only want to treat that later on in the development of the person you may want to treat it when somebody reaches their 30s or their 40s if for a disease like cystic fibrosis you had the way of intervening very early at an early stage you may want to do that Um, but the idea is that you should be able to deliver it to the cells within the patient and so in a way the age wouldn't matter. Of course there is another way of using genetic information and that's to screen the embryos that you actually use through an IVF type approach. So genetic information can be used in other ways but once you start talking about correcting genetic information, really in principle at least, the idea would be to do it at any stage. Sure. I'm not sure if we've strayed into this area or not but would there be any ethical considerations when you were talking about doing things very very early on? I mean, well, there are, there are a couple of ethical considerations about gene therapy in general. The first ethical consideration is early intervention, when the fetus is developing very rapidly, if you do it at the fetal stage, or when the child is very young, there's so much developing that the chances to have side effects are much greater than when you do late-stage intervention. So that's, that's one ethical consideration. Uh, the child's body is developing much more rapidly. Um, the other ethical consideration is what really is a genetic defect at the end of the day. I mean, what do you want to treat with this kind of treatment? I mean, most people would want to get rid of a disease like cystic fibrosis, which kills, but there are many things that you could also link to genetics, which are potentially not defects, but people may want to tamper with if they felt they had the opportunity. And so there are ethical concerns and considerations. And But again, the field of medicine is very well regulated. And, and I feel that of all the of all the areas where nanotechnology will be applied, probably medicine is the least controversial of all of them because those kinds of panels and ethical considerations are in place in the field of medicine, whereas perhaps nanotechnology in other areas, where there's less, eth- less ethical control at the moment, needs slightly more new bodies set up to consider application. As I'm sure we're all aware, um, medical treatment is very expensive, and uh, is this going to be something that's within the reach of everybody or will it only be available to those that can afford it perhaps those on private healthcare plans and that that kind of thing i mean i actually think that's a a really broad question that that it's difficult to answer because the way that medicine's developing at the moment many, many treatments that are coming through are expensive. You look at the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, week by week they're looking at the new therapies coming through and saying yes it has sufficient benefit, we'll pay for it, or no it doesn't have sufficient benefit and we won't pay for it. And so I think it depends on the benefit that comes out of these things. Nanotechnology isn't per se expensive, it's a different way of thinking about doing medicine, that's the first thing to say. It's a different way of approaching medicine. It doesn't have to be expensive. Um And those treatments that do turn out to be expensive, it depends on benefit, at least for their use in the Western world. You know, if you can regrow somebody a heart using stem cells that are their own genotype and that they're not going to reject the heart, ultimately, the NHS is probably going to pay for that kind of treatment because it's absolutely life-saving and life-changing. If you're talking about buying somebody an extra month of life... With a terminal illness, this is where it becomes more borderline, whether the cost of new drugs is is worth it to the taxpayer or not. It's always worth it to the patient, of course. I think it's a big issue that in a way the NHS has to tackle over the next ten years. And it's not just going to be driven by nanotechnology, it's driven by all the new medicinal treatments that come through. Um, looking outside of this country, that's an even bigger issue. I mean, you look at healthcare in sub-Saharan Africa. Where the life expectancy is, is only 40, and in the UK we expect to live to 80. And this is a, a big issue for healthcare worldwide. And I think it's essential that we make sure that healthcare doesn't become the preserve of the rich and doesn't become the preserve of the West and is available to all. Um, as I said, nanotechnology per se is not expensive, but, um, but it's a big challenge that the medical industry and the pharmaceutical companies have to face. That's great, Professor David Smith. Thank you very much. Thank you.